You can keep your Bibles where they are. We're actually going to be looking at 625 through 28 of Daniel. That's going to be our text for this morning. Last Sunday, we looked at Daniel avenged, uh, how King Darius executed the men who conspired against him and against Daniel. You remember how it went? Daniel was to be executed, but God preserved his life, rescued him, and what happened instead was that the men who concocted that crazy law that got Daniel nearly executed to begin with, they were thrown into the lion's den. They, their families, what was it, their wives and their children, the text says, and they were devoured. So we looked at Daniel avenged. That is how the Lord avenged him. He, he put to death Daniel's enemies. Uh, this morning we're going to wrap up chapter 6 with Darius's conversion. Darius is the king, King Darius. He's the Medo-Persian king at this time. And we're going we're gonna to talk about his conversion in verses 25 through 28, uh, Daniel recorded what appears to be a letter that Darius had written and sent throughout his kingdom shortly after the lion's den incident. So like right after. The letter contains a second decree followed by several declarations about the God of Daniel. You remember the first decree that went out was the decree that said that you could not uh, bow to or seek, pray, worship any god but King Darius for 30 days. All of this is taking place within this 30 days. So what we're looking at in this text is a second decree that went out, as well as some declarations about God that Darius made. Each declaration uh, sort of reflects an attribute or an ability of God. Darius made six declarations in our text, which I believe helped to show that he was, in fact, converted uh, to the true faith and that he had become a genuine believer. In other words, the things that we're going to look at are not the things that unbelievers say about God. Uh, not even uh, deists, those who believe in intelligent design or something of that nature. They believe that something had to come before all of this. Not even they will say the kinds of things that are represented here. And so I think that this text provides proof for Darius's conversion. And we saw something similar to that back in chapter 4 with King Nebuchadnezzar who made some declarations. So we're kind of looking at the same thing here. So our primary objective is to focus on two things. The second decree and the declarations. Let's pray uh, before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves now and we just place ourselves at your feet. We want to be like Mary, the sister of Martha. She was off, Martha was off doing the dishes and getting things ready for a great meal and Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet and taking in His instruction, His teaching and enjoying the fellowship with Him. And we want to be like Mary this morning. We want to humbly sit at your feet. We pray that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that your word would prevail over our doubts, our unbeliefs, um, just everything. And so we give you this time. We pray that you would be glorified during this time. That uh, 
these folks who have come today, and I'm so thankful for them. It's nice to have somebody to preach to. I'm so thankful uh, for them being here, but I pray that they would not hear Pastor Phil, that they would hear Jesus Christ, because he is the pastor of this church. He is the top, highest shepherd. And so we sit at his feet, and we listen for his voice and his instruction, his wisdom, his exhortation, his correction. May we be humble children who just sit at the feet of Jesus now and listen, receive all the glory. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick it up at verse 25. Are you there? Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. I'm kind of sad because we're about to wrap up this chapter, which has been my favorite one so far in the book of Daniel. Um, But we're going to try to wrap it up this morning. We're starting at 25. It says, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. He begins his letter with the words, Peace be multiplied to you. Daniel tells us that, that Darius took immediate action after the lion's den incident. So it's like that happens, Daniel's rescued, Daniel's brought out, he's examined, he doesn't have any scratches on him, he's in perfect condition, he's just as he was when he went in, he hasn't been harmed, the other people were devoured instantly, the king is utterly blown away and immediately calls the scribes or whoever to come and put together a letter that he intends to send out. It's basically dressed to his entire kingdom, which was comprised of peoples, nations, and languages. Keep in mind that back in these days, uh, if you had a very powerful king with a powerful military, a powerful kingdom, they would go out and conquer other kingdoms and sort of absorb them. And then those peoples and nations and kingdoms would become a part of the larger parent kingdom. And that's who he's addressing. All of these people whom have been conquered by him and, and even previously through King Nebuchadnezzar who conquered a great many peoples, nations, and languages So he sends this out to people's languages and nations, to every different type of person who lives in his kingdom. He had a sort of cultural melting pot. It reminds me of yesterday. I was in San Francisco, and it's... You just drive up one street and it's, it's all Chinese folks. And then you turn another corner and then you've got Italian folks. And you turn another corner and you've got this. And it was, it was like that. You have all of these different people groups under this one umbrella. It was crazy. I actually had a good time there. It's the first time I've gone there in a long time and I actually had a good time. I only yelled at other cars a few times. So <laughs> At the end when I was trying to leave and get on the bridge, I, I would have, it would have taken less time to swim the bay than to get on the Bay Bridge. In any case, you've got that playing out. You've got him addressing this thing to all of these different types of people. And you must also consider that Medo-Persia, that's the kingdom that's in in place and power here, uh, was the most powerful and largest kingdom of its day, far bigger and more powerful than anything up north in Europe or anywhere else throughout the world. It was considered at that time the center of the world, much like later on how the Roman Empire became the center of the world. I like how Daniel put it. He, uh, his way of saying the center of the world is all the earth. It's, it's as if when you sent out a, a notification to your kingdom, and it was Medo-Persia, you were sending out that notification to all the earth because that's how vast and large this kingdom was. Did it, did it uh, 
you know, go overseas and all of that? No. But it was considered the hub or the center of the world at the time. So this thing goes out to everyone there. And he began his, his letter with the standard issue sort of royal salutation of that day, peace be multiplied to you. You can look in the Bible, you will see other kings, Nebuchadnezzar and other wish the multiplication of peace within their kingdoms. Many of these old style kings from antiquity would start their letters with that sort of phrase. Um, it was kind of a disarming phrase. Okay, this is a, a good thing that he's writing. You would think if you saw that right off the bat. It's kind of like our, how are you? How you doing? Quite frankly, Darius wanted peace to be multiplied among his people. Peace among the inhabitants uh, of a kingdom was essential to that kingdom's progress. Now, it is essential that you have peace, and it was a difficult thing to have peace when you have different cultures and peoples and languages living under the same umbrella, if you will, right? You get the inbiting, you've got the breakdown of communication and those things, you've got the cultural differences. But Darius realizes that, okay, I've got a melting pot here, but I want everyone, I want peace to be multiplied among everyone, because he realizes that without peace, there is no progress in his kingdom. So that's how he kind of kicks off his letter. Look at 26a. It says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. In chapter 6, there are two decrees that went out from the king's court. Okay? We see the first one in verses 6 through 9. The second one is here in 26a. It's important to note that the decree that we're looking at here in 26a is a repealment and replacement of the earlier decree. Have you been watching the news lately? The conservatives are working feverishly to repeal and replace a decree called Obamacare. This, I know you guys are thinking, oh, he's going to get political. No, I'm not. I'm just giving you a modern-day context. Believe me, I don't want to talk about any of that stuff. Um, but it's a similar situation that's playing out here. A law had been written, documented, signed, and sent out. And now there's another decree that's gone out. And it, is a, it repeals and replaces the first one that went out. The first decree, as I already pointed to, instructs the people of the kingdom to pray to no other man or God but Darius for 30 days. And if they broke that decree, what was the punishment? It was to be thrown to the lions, right? We saw that with Daniel because he didn't obey and did it. He kept bowing to his God. The second decree instructs the same people, the same kingdom, to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. <laughs> right? The first decree basically says, worship King Darius. You can just boil it down. That's what the first decree had to do with. I'm sending this decree out and I want everyone for the next 30 days to worship no one else but me. That's the first decree. The second decree, however, says, worship the God of Daniel. So what we're looking at here is a, a, a total reversal of the first decree, as well as a potential breach 
of Medo-Persian law, which says so clearly, even in our passage in verses 8 and 15, that it is totally illegal for anyone to reverse a king's decree. So, is Darius breaking his own laws here? Probably. It could be that the first decree became nullified after Darius had learned that it was based on a deception. So as soon as he realized what his satraps and high officials were up to, and then Daniel was rescued in the lion's den, he might have just said, okay, well that just that entire decree that, that we did the first time was no good because of what it was based on. He might have taken the paper that it was written on and thrown it into the lion's den with the satraps and the high officials and their families. Okay, this is just bunk, it's gone. It would be like you holding something up and lighting it on fire. It could have been that that happened. I don't know how it played out. We don't know for sure whether he broke his own law uh, or not. If the law was still in effect, then he broke it. If it wasn't in effect, then he didn't. Either way, I don't think he cared. He had just witnessed... (laughs) the living God, the God of Daniel, say, I don't care about your earthly laws. They mean nothing to me. God circumvented that law that went out, didn't he, by rescuing Daniel. Daniel did not suffer the death penalty as the law stipulated. Either way, Darius looks at it and goes, the law don't matter. Not when God, not when heaven makes a ruling. We don't know exactly how it played out, but we know what Darius did. I want you to focus on the words tremble and fear. How how are they expressed in a translation other than my highly superior one, the ESV? Does it say anything different in any of your Bibles? Does it say tremble and fear? You always have something opposite to what I have. No, it says tremble and fear? Okay. So there's unity there among the translators. For the first time. That's great. Focus on those words. Just just hone in on them. Tremble in fear. And then when I was looking at those phrases, a lot of different that that phrase, tremble in fear, a lot of things came to mind. One of the things that came to mind is is Psalm 111, verse 10. uh, And and Proverbs 9, 10. Does anyone remember what they say? What, What is the beginning of wisdom? It is the fear of the Lord. Do you remember that? That's, that is such an important truth. The beginning of wisdom, according to Psalm 111.10 and Proverbs 9.10, is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is foundational to true wisdom. All other types of learning are worthless unless built upon a knowledge of the Lord Himself. Before we can understand how the fear of the Lord leads to wisdom, we need to define what the Bible means by fear in this context. In the Bible, the word translated fear can mean several things. It can refer to the terror one feels in a frightening situation, Deuteronomy 2.25. It can mean respect in the way that a servant fears his master and serves him faithfully, Joshua 24.14. Nice example there. Fear can also denote The reverence or awe a person feels in the presence of greatness, Isaiah 6, 5. What happened to Isaiah in that text when he realized he was in the presence of God? 
Oh, he gave the old kind of old wretched man that I am. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I represent a people of unclean lips. He was terrified. He had that fear of the Lord there. The fear of the Lord is a combination of all of these things. The fear of the Lord can be defined as the continual awareness that our loving Heavenly Father is watching and evaluating everything we think, say, and do. Daniel's, or Darius's, pardon me, Darius's second decree calls for his subjects, the people in his kingdom, to fear the Lord, which has to do with being aware of his presence and power and respecting him, revering him above all others. What does that tell us about Darius? If, if, if a person is commanding his audience to fear the Lord, what does that tell us about him? He must also fear the Lord. He's speaking from conviction. He's speaking from experience. He's speaking from wisdom. He's speaking from knowledge. What it tells us is that Darius himself feared the Lord and was now on the path of true wisdom. It tells us that he was a believer because only believers fear the Lord. In the right way, I must say. That respect, that acknowledgement of his awesomeness and his presence. Unbelievers have no fear of the Lord. I, I know I was one for 30 years. I had no concept of him. I, I didn't think about him. I didn't think twice about him. If somebody mentioned God, I was like, okay, whatever, that's good for you. What's good for me is another joint. I just, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about him. Did anyone else in here think about God before you were saved? I rarely, if ever, thought about him. And if I did, he was more like an invisible cosmic force. He was like Star Wars, right? He was like a Jedi. These are not the droids you're looking for. But I am looking for those droids, Lord. That would be how I would respond. Just clueless. Unbelievers have no fear of the Lord and therefore do not possess true wisdom. Because true wisdom, the starting point, is the fear of the Lord, which we see Darius having and commanding his people to have. There is good news, however, though, for unbelievers. And that is that they can gain both the fear of the Lord and wisdom. The wisdom, they can have both of those things, if you will, through being born again into the family of God by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how they come to us. The phrase tremble and fear also reminds me of Philippians 2.12. It says, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Isn't that interesting? Here Paul shows the attitude of a true believer. A true believer should have a healthy fear of offending God and a righteous awe and respect for Him. If a believer has no fear and respect for God, then he or she might not actually be a believer or they have calloused their heart uh, you know, through sinning a lot and habitual sin. They have become desensitized to sin and in some ways quenched that Holy Spirit and the way the Holy Spirit calls us and whispers to us and He's gentle. You can just sin so much that you can't hear His voice. The great Puritan divine John Owen once said, 
be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now that, that is a warning that every believer needs to heed, right? Especially this one who's preaching. I tend to not take my sins very seriously. I take others' sins very seriously. Whoa, I tell you. I call them out. Oh, I can't believe what that guy did. Whoa. But mine, I seem to be okay with them. If we are not in the business of killing sin, and Jesus put it like this, carrying your cross, dying to self, if we're not in the business of killing sin, it's going to kill us. Can it separate us from the love of God and and end our salvation? Absolutely not. But it can certainly frustrate every aspect of our lives, including our faith, including the way that we perceive God's love. I'll tell you, one of the things that distorts God's love is our own personal sin. When we start sinning, we engage in sin and keep going and keep going and keep going. We, we, we just, it's like we lose direction. We can't figure out where we're headed. And we think that God has either ticked off at us or abandoned us or He never loved us to begin with. There's just a whole mess of things that can, that can happen. We need to take that warning seriously. We need to learn to tremble in fear before our God. And I tell you, there's a great movement today. It's not great because it's truly good. It's great in its reach, and that is this free grace movement of, who cares? We're covered by grace. Just, I mean, what's it matter? You're loved. You're accepted. You're this. You're that. Whatever. To heck with holiness. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. You were elected. There's a fatalism within the movement that I belong to. I'm a Calvinist, and there is a, a dreadful fatalism in it that just says that just sin all you want because it's all, you know, where your sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Paul said, no, don't look at it like that. It's not a license for sin. People in my camp need to get this down. We need to figure out. We need to be holy. We need to be righteous. We need to pursue those things. We need to be in the business of killing sin or it will kill us. Look at the phrase, the God of Daniel. Another phrase there. If Darius, and this is a, a great question, I think, that, that comes to mind. It's the first thing that my wife said when I started to talk to her about Darius being a believer. She wasn't convinced of it because of this phrase. If Darius had become a true believer, if he was a man of faith now, why did he continue to refer to God as the God of Daniel? Why didn't he say, tremble and fear before my God? Isn't that a great question? No, it's not. She's in kids. She can't hear me. I, I, want, you to, I want you to think about it. We need to keep something in mind. We need to keep in mind that this kingdom was polytheistic. That means that it had many, many gods. The Medo-Persians had a whole pantheon filled with different gods. We've got a god for this. We've got a god for that. You stub your toe. There's a god for that. Go to the stub toe god. We have a god for everything. They did. You know, you see it with the Greeks. You see it with the Romans. You saw it with the Babylonians. You see it with the Medo-Persians. It was a polytheistic, multi-god culture, just as America is. This is a Christian nation. No, this, this nation is polytheistic. It is. There were many, many gods in Medo-Persian 
religion. Now just think about that. If Darius had written, tremble in fear before my God, what would his people have said? Which one? Which one are we to tremble in fear before? Because I don't know if it's this one or this one or Molech or which one. They would have been asked, they would have been scratching their heads. Which God is he referring to? Which one? Darius did not want to confuse his people. They were already confused in terms of religion. He didn't want to frustrate them. By pointing to the God of Daniel, he avoided confusion. He made his expectations clear. And he also testified to his new faith. You see, these people in this kingdom knew who the God of Daniel was. Oh, he's the God of the Jewish people, those uh, exiles that are here living among us. Darius made a distinction. And he laid out his expectation. And he also, in a way, that the, what he denotes here, what he communicates in a way is that that's my God. He does actually communicate it by telling people to revere him now. I mean, he just sent out a letter that said, worship me. Now he's sending another one out that says, worship God, Daniel's God. His people were probably scratching their heads. This guy's all over the place. But he did not want to confuse them by saying, worship my new God. It would have been confusing. In verses 26b through 27, we see Darius's rationale. These are the reasons for why his people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. It's like he wrote, I command that you tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, and here is why. And then he goes on to make these declarations, right? And we're going to take a look at each one of them, and I will do my best to parallel each of them to Jesus as we go, because that's one thing that we've been doing in the book of Daniel. And we should do it whenever we're preaching anywhere in Scripture, is we should be tying things to Jesus. Jesus himself said, all the prophets and the law and everything point to me. If you knew the prophets, if you knew the law, you would know me, but you don't know them. He said that to the Pharisees. So it all points to him, and so I want to point to him. Amen? All right, so we've got, uh, I think we've got six declarations here, and, and these are semi-practical. Uh, there, by no means could I exhaust them in um, probably 50 sermons on each one because they essentially represent attributes of God. But uh, the intent here, they're listed here in a practical way for his people to get and know Darius's, and we're not supposed to just take all this time. As, we'll, lose, we'll lose the storyline if we get into them too far. So anyways, I don't want to do that. Number one, the first thing that he says is God is alive. How does he say it in verse 26b? For he is the living God. For he is the living God. Okay, I, I want you to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. Why? Because he is alive. He is the living God. In Darius's realm, the gods were nothing more than statues and idols made of stone and wood. They did not hear, they did not see, they did not move, they did not respond to you. They didn't do anything, they just sat there like a totem pole. There was nothing. They just sat there motionless. But the God of Daniel was different. 
He says he is alive. He is the living God. He, and what does he mean here? He responds. You know, you're not going to respond if you're dead, if you're mute, motionless. If you can respond, you must be alive, right? If you've got a corpse, it's not going to do anything. You've got to be alive to be able to respond. Darius had witnessed a response from this God. He knew Daniel was praying to him and rescue me in the den, whatever it was that Daniel was praying for. And he saw the living God respond, or he saw Daniel's God respond thus, he is living. In other words, he answers prayer. You got to be alive to answer prayer. What else did he do? He dispatched an angel to rescue his servant. You got to be alive to call an angel up and say, go down there and take care of that. Angel of the Lord or Gabriel or whoever. Darius witnessed these things transpire at the den and and now understood the difference between his deaf and dumb idols and the God of Daniel. The difference is those things that I was calling gods are just stone and wood. They don't do anything. But Daniel's God is alive. He responds, he answers prayer, he dispatched an angel, he is different, he is alive. That's what he realized. The ESV translation refers to God as the living God 28 times. It's an even split, 14 in the Old Testament and 14 in the New Testament. Jeremiah 10.10 says, and this was authored close to the same time, these guys were contemporaries, 10.10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth shakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. You shift way over to the last book in the Bible, in the New Testament. You look at Revelation 7, 2. It says, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. I don't even get into that. The point is, you've got living God toward the beginning of the Bible or in the middle of the Bible. You've got living God at the end. And there's 14 places in the Old Testament. There's 14 places in the New Testament. What's the point? He's alive. If God... Now, I just want you to think about the implications. If God were not alive then nothing would be alive and nothing would exist. You understand? When people argue that there is no God, they're arguing against the existence of all things. If there is no God or God is not alive, there is nothing. You don't even ponder that question because you don't exist. He is the creator. Scripture refers to Him as the giver. He is the sustainer of all life. He doesn't just create life, He sustains life. What does it say in Colossians? All things were made to, through, for Jesus. Scriptures talks about God upholding all things by the might of His hand. What does it say in Acts 17, 28, when when Paul uh, cited those Athenian uh, philosophers? They got this right, right? They didn't get a lot of things right in their philosophy. They got this right. For in Him we live and move and have our being. You see, if God isn't a being, and if He isn't alive, you aren't a being. You aren't alive. You don't exist. Romans 1 talks about 
the purpose of creation, to testify to not only the existence of the living God, but to His power. For in Him we live and move and have our being. If He doesn't exist, we don't exist. If He isn't alive, we aren't alive. If He isn't alive, nothing is alive. Nothing. And by grace, through faith, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have been made spiritually alive to the living God. There's your parallel. Because God lives and because God effected, regenerated our hearts and effected faith and gave us those gifts, He has made us alive to Him. Before, when, before you were not alive spiritually. You were dead in your transgressions, Ephesians 2.1. Oh, you were alive and moving around. But in terms of spiritual life, you were dead. You were a corpse, flatlined, beep. Before Jesus, we were in our transgressions, sins, and dead before the living God. But by grace, through faith in Jesus, we have been made alive to the living God. We now breathe spiritually and are alive and can respond to Him, acknowledge Him, worship Him, love Him, obey Him, serve Him, enjoy Him. Amen. You got a little whisper hallelujah in the corner over here. Everyone else is going. God is alive. The first thing that He wants to convey to the people of His kingdom is, look people, I have been worshiping stuff that is not alive. And Daniel's God is alive. He has done something that none of those dumb idols that we have been praising could ever do. Let's just do a, a test and throw someone in the lion's den and we'll stand up one of them idols next to the hole. Let's see what happens. Oh! It didn't work. Maybe if we throw the idol down and hit the lion, we'll be okay. Number two, God is eternal. And he puts it like this in 26C, enduring forever. When you say enduring forever, you mean eternal. You mean no beginning and no end. The example of Daniel may have helped Darius draw this conclusion about God. I'm sure that many of Daniel's examples did. The Holy Spirit certainly did his part, amen, because the Holy Spirit is the discerner of all truth. Many kings had come and gone, but Daniel remained throughout the years. Daniel outlasted all of the kings. Nebuchadnezzar, all the kings that came after Nebuchadnezzar, there were like seven kings, eight kings, nine kings maybe. The one person, the one permanent fixture in Babylon and then in Medo-Persia, and we're talking about 80, 100 years here, the one permanent fixture there was Daniel. Oh, there's that Daniel again. Forty years later, there's that Daniel again. Sixty years later, there's that Daniel again. Dang it, I've had two relatives die. Daniel just seems to outlast everyone. What is the example that Daniel emits? Daniel is an embodiment or an example of God's eternality. 
All these things are shifting and coming and going. Kings rise, kings fall. Kingdoms rise, king, kingdoms fall. But Daniel remains. Why? Because God remains. That's the example through Daniel's continuance. Daniel outlasted them all. He was a constant and his devotion to God was constant. Since God is eternal, He is not subject to time. He's not bound in space. He's not subject to events. He's not subject to aging. He's not subject to decay, to change. He's not subject to any form of corruption. Now, what does that mean? What are the impl- what, is a, what is a great personal application of the eternality of God to us? Since He is rock solid, not impacted by anything, we can bank on Him. And we can bank on His promises. Psalm 119.89 says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. You know, people are playing fast and loose with the Word of God down here on this side of glory, aren't they? Christians, churches, that's what gets me going is when churches do it. But people are playing fast and loose with it down here. It's still eternal. No one changes it. I once met a guy who was a believer for 30 years and then wasn't a believer, and he just reckoned that he could just turn it off. Well, I believed the Bible for all these years, and now I don't, so it's no longer relevant or existent or has any power or anything. Well, guess what? You don't get to flip that switch. It's not your guide anymore. Now it's your judge. That's reality. You don't get to flip it on and off. We see, it seems like we can down here, but I love the point that the psalmist makes. It stands firm in the heavens. It's not impacted by any form of manipulation or anything like that in the heavens, in the place, the abode of God. Down here, we play fast and loose with it. Up there, no. Now you just think about more implications here. In parallels, Jesus Christ is God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end, right? Revelation 22, 13. Since He is God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, He has no beginning and no end. In the incarnation, He certainly had a beginning and an end, right? 33-year life. But He is from before all the ages and has no true beginning or end as God. The implication of that is, is that the salvation that we have in and through Jesus is therefore everlasting. It is everlasting. There's no end to it. Jonathan Edwards once argued that if heaven is forever, then hell is forever. During his day, there were people that were universalists and believed that God was going to save all people and even those who were in hell for a while. It was almost like a purgatory. He was going to bring hell to an end and then bring those people who suffered in hell for their sins. He was going to bring them out and bring them into heaven. Edwards dealt with that head on and said, look, you need to understand something. Just think about it in terms of biblical logic. If heaven is forever, so is hell. One isn't shorter than the other. They are direct opposites, but they're both eternal, or both everlasting, so to speak. And I think that as believers, we should rejoice because of what Jesus has saved us from and to. He has saved us from everlasting torment and hell to 
everlasting joy, everlasting bliss in the presence of God. Even in this life, we have the presence of God. It's going to be quite extraordinary when we go to be with Him, but it's pretty awesome during this life. It's going to get much better. He has saved us from that and saved us to something in which Scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. We have something beautiful coming because of Jesus. We don't have the opposite coming. Number three, God is indestructible. 26b puts it like this, His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. Darius' inability to execute Daniel at the lion's den obviously convinced him of God's indestructibility. (laughs) Daniel, in some ways, seemed invincible to Darius. We only see in, in Scripture one example of you know, Darius trying to kill him here. So we don't have multiple examples where he's throwing him in front of buses and out of planes, and those things didn't exist then, but you know what I mean. We don't see him trying to kill him over and over and over, but I think that just this one incident, which was such a powerful and profound event, it literally convinced Darius that Daniel, Daniel cannot be killed because of his God. Daniel's indestructibility testified to God's indestructibility and to the enduring and everlasting nature of his kingdom. I think that the longevity of Daniel's time in the region also played into that. He's the one constant. These things have been destroyed and gone and come and gone, and yet Daniel remains. That also convicted him of God's indestructibility. I think Darius was familiar with Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic statue dream. Daniel likely taught him about the rock, the kingdom of God, which flies in and brings down that big structure, which represents all of the primary kingdoms of the world. The rock is the kingdom of God. It shall grow and grow and grow and cover the entire earth. That's what Darius is trying to say in his own words here, his kingdom shall never be destroyed. I believe in the the prophecy of that statue is what he's saying. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom went, there's an example. Mine will surely go one day, there's another example. The salvation that we have in and through Jesus Christ is indestructible. John 10, 29 says, My Father, this is Jesus speaking, My Father who has given them, He's speaking of all believers of all time, to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them from or out of the Father's hand. Man, I love that. How could anyone want to argue against that Scripture? There's people that argue, I don't like election. I don't like these things. I don't like it. It's for everyone. I like the universal thing. I like that. I prefer that. Well, that sounds like to me I could lose it. And no one will snatch one believer. Doesn't matter how young, old, whatever. No one will ever be able to snatch one from the Father's hand. Why? Because the salvation that He has wrought was wrought with His indestructible hand. Therefore, it is indestructible. We should have the great assurance of our salvation because it has been wrought and put together by the God who is indestructible. I love what 1 Peter 1.23 says. 
For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. This is why we don't have a spirit of timidity as believers. This is why we should not be ruled by fear in any way. Uh, The implications are staggering. God is indestructible. Our salvation is indestructible. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Number four, God is sovereign. 26E, His dominion shall be to the end. This has to do with sovereignty. Darius realized through the lion's den incident that he was not in control. He thought he was in control. He certainly had Daniel brought over and, you know, he he had the law put out there and he broke the law and he had him brought over and threw him into the law. He thought he was in control. But when those lions didn't devour him, which they should have, he realized something. The muzzling of the lions and the undoing of his self exalting ordinance made clear to Darius that someone else is in charge. Obviously, I have some power. I've got this kingdom and all that. It's vast and all that. I've got subjects. I've got servants. I've got wives. I've got all this stuff. Obviously, I have some level of sovereignty and control here, but I don't have it in the ultimate sense. That's what he reckoned. He came to the same conclusion as Nebuchadnezzar. Remember his testimony in Daniel 4.35? It says, "All this is Nebuchadnezzar writing this himself. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And God does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? That was the conclusion that Nebuchadnezzar drew after 42 years of basically, you know, disobeying God. Rejecting his sovereignty and rule. And then he becomes like an animal grazing in the field. Can you imagine? One day you're frying eggs in a pan. The next day you're grazing grass. Oh, it's weird. You come to your senses and realize, I'm not in control. I thought I was for 42 years. My bad. I didn't like being out in the field. It was crazy. Some of those cows... Darius realized that the God of Daniel, the living God, is sovereign, in charge, and that his dominion or rule has no boundaries. That's what he's saying. It's not that his dominion shall be to the end in that that it'll be to the end to the end of time. He's saying it has no boundaries. He has mastery over me and my kingdom. He has mastery over you. That's why I'm saying tremble and fear before him. He realized that there was never a moment where God is not sovereign. He is sovereign over everyone and everything all the time, even the salvation of the saints. The salvation we have and enjoy in and through Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, is a direct result of God's sovereign grace. The Bible teaches that God is, in His sovereign grace, has chosen to save those whom He has set His love on, Romans 9, 8 through 13. This is a a humbling truth. 
It's a humbling truth that God chose to save us in eternity past because of His great love. It's humbling. It should result in immense gratitude, not whining about others and why not this person and why not that person and this isn't fair and that isn't fair and fair, fair, fair. Imagine having the, doing the greatest thing ever for your child and your child whining and complaining. What did I watch last night? Million Dollar Baby. Anyone ever seen that movie? That is a phenomenal movie. Clint Eastwood, it's a boxing movie. He, he decides to, to coach and manage a female boxer. He's never done it. He doesn't want to do it. He ends up doing it. She becomes like a champion throughout the whole world. She goes, and, and she comes from straight-up trailer action. Okay? Amen. Some of us have been there. Get it. Straight-up comes from that. She goes, and, and her, her mom and sister live together, and, and we're living in a trailer. It was all beat up and tore up. She goes and, and buys a nice little house. For her mom. Doesn't have a dishwasher. Doesn't have a refrigerator. Doesn't have this. Doesn't have that. I wanted to punch the TV. And th this is the same way that, that we tend to treat God. We just don't like some of the ways you've done things, God. I'm not not happy about the, 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 this idea of predestination and election and newsflash. If there is no election or predestination, no one gets saved. It's the bottom line. It just doesn't happen. And in His love, He chose to save us. Romans, read Romans 9, 8 through 13. It's a humbling truth and it should result in great gratitude, not complaining or bickering. It is a mysterious truth. Paul and I have talked about it. No one can lay claim to fully understanding God's grace or His sovereignty or the way He's elected and all that. It's, it's a tough thing. I get it. Anyone who claims to be an expert on that, I think I did with him one time, he goes, you're a better man than me. That was a rebuke. I realized afterwards, I am terrible. But I do believe that truth, and I love that truth, and it has transformed my worship and my life. Why did God bestow His sovereign grace on believers? As I said, it's because of His love, not because we deserve salvation. He did it to demonstrate the riches of His glory. Romans 9, 14 through 23. I like how Spurgeon put it. He said, If any man be saved, he is saved by divine grace and divine grace alone. The reason of his salvation is not found in him, but in God. We are not saved as, as the result of anything that we do or that we will, but we will and do as the result of God's good pleasure and the work of His grace in our hearts. Oh, man, that's right on the money. How should we respond to God's sovereign grace, the fact that He has chose to save us and He has done that, He has come to us in power, not only sent His Son 2,000 years ago, but He has sent His Spirit to come to us in power in this day and age to save, to regenerate, to awaken us to Him. How should we respond to His sovereign grace? How about Ephesians 1.3? It says, and this is how Paul did it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the right response of the believer 
when they start to grapple with and understand just a little bit what has been done for them. It's not just that Jesus died on a cross for the world. It's that he died on the cross specifically to save a specific people, his people. God has always been a God of choice. Always. He chose the Israelites. He chose Jacob. It's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal truth. He is sovereign, not just over our salvation, but over all things. Five, God is deliverer, 27a. Now we transition to 27, 27a. He delivers and rescues. That's how he puts it. He delivers and rescues. Darius realized that the living God also possessed the unique ability to intervene and deliver a person from peril and death. He saw Daniel's rescue as an act of divine deliverance or divine rescue. In the Old Testament, we, are, uh, we read about several types of deliverance. Deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from enemies, deliverance from the fiery furnace, right? We saw that earlier in Daniel. Deliverance from the lion's den, etc., etc. There's all sorts of examples of deliverance in the Old Testament. God used men like Moses to deliver His people. God used the angel of the Lord in the fiery furnace and probably in the lion's den to deliver Daniel or Daniel's buddies earlier. In the New Testament, we read about deliverance from sin, Satan, death, and hell. All of the deliverances of the Old Testament are meant to point to New Testament deliverance, the deliverance of Jesus. God has brought deliverance from those enemies, sin, Satan, death, and hell, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who come to Him by grace through faith shall be delivered from those enemies. And those enemies are far worse than earthly enemies. God is deliverer. Darius saw that with his own two eyes. The fact that Daniel stood before him after being in the lion's den convinced him that, wow, your God delivers. Again, we stick an idol near the hole. It does nothing unless it falls in and kills one of the lions and there's 20 more. So we set up 20 of them, have them all fall in. We time it perfectly. Look, our God saved him. It's foolishness. God alone is the deliverer. Six, God is omnipotent. That means all-powerful. Verse 27b, He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. What He's really referring to here is the power of God. He gave an example of God's all power in 27C. It says, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. What he's saying is is Daniel's God has more power than the lions, obviously. Darius believed that Daniel's rescue was the result of God's power, which he referred to as signs and wonders. We call signs and wonders miracles, right? That's what we call them. We see expressions of God's power through miracles throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, the ten plagues, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the parting of the Red Sea, the water from the rock. Those are all examples, miraculous examples of God's supernatural, miraculous power. In Daniel, we see an explosion of miracles again through dreams, visions, deliverance, rescue, right? There's miracles there, God's power. 
In the New Testament, more particularly in the Gospels, we see the anointed Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, perform dozens and dozens of miracles. In fact, it says at the end of the Gospel of John, He did so many things, there's not enough books in the world to record them all. He's using hyperbole, but still. He did more than what's recorded. You know what? I've read all these things and studied them. Now, spend eternity telling me about the other ones, Lord, when I'm in His presence, right? I want to hear about the other things. What did He do? What do we see Him doing in the Gospels? He cast out demons. He, he healed lepers. He, he walked on water. He raised some folks from the dead. He fed 4,000, 5,000, then 4,000, 9,000 people, not including women and children. Thousands, et cetera, et cetera. One of the all-time greatest expressions of God's power, one of the greatest miracles is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, it says, By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead. The Father exercised His omnipotent power to raise His only begotten Son from the grave. Our salvation in Christ, in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, is a direct result of not only God's sovereign grace, but of His power 1 Corinthians 1.18, the same power that raised Christ from the grave has raised us to spiritual life in Christ and will raise us to physical life with Christ on resurrection day. It is also the power of God in us manifested by the presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us to live a holy and fruitful life unto the Lord. The power of God. Let's just begin to wrap it up. We've got one more little verse to look at, then I'll close. Verse 28 marks the end of the historical narrative in the book of Daniel. In chapter 7, we will begin to deal with the apocalyptic writing, or what Cheryl calls the freaky deaky. It says, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel closed with a statement that summarized his life under the kingship of both Darius and Cyrus, those two great kings, one the Mede king, the other the Persian king. Despite his adversaries and the harm they sought to inflict upon him, Daniel prospered during the reigns of both of those kings. That's what he's saying. Stuff happened, but I prospered. Despite our adversaries and the harm they seek to inflict upon us, God will also prosper us. That's the parallel. Does this mean that we are guaranteed physical health and wealth in this life? No. Some will tell you yes. That is to presume upon the Lord. There's no guarantee for those things. There could be a provision for those things within God's providence. I just thought about it when I was writing this, that I'm fairly healthy. I think I've got the health in a sense, and I'm certainly wealthy when you consider other countries. But it's not enough for us Americans, is it? We've all been bitten by the bug of consumerism and the American dream. 
And if you've got a roof over your head and a little bit of food in your fridge and a car to drive around, you are wealthier than 95, maybe 99% of the world's populace. But that's, there's no guarantee, as some of those snake oil salesmen will tell you. You surrender to Jesus and you'll have all the health and wealth you could ever imagine. Nah, no guarantee for that. And I'll tell you what, the prosperity of God is much broader than mere health and wealth. It's way broader than mere health and wealth. We can prosper in our service to the Lord. We can prosper in joy. We can prosper in peace. We can prosper in knowledge and in wisdom. We can prosper in spiritual growth, right? Sanctification. We can prosper in fellowship with God. Did you know that you can prosper in your relationship with God? It can become so rich and sweet and satisfying. That is a prosperity bestowed upon us by our benevolent Father. We can prosper in our relationships. We can prosper in a lot of ways. And the fact is, is that many of them, if not all of them, are superior to health and wealth. Jesus asked, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The answer is nothing. He prospers nothing. He gains nothing. Nothing. And listen carefully. But the man whose soul is firmly fixed in Jesus Christ by grace through faith has truly prospered. He has true wealth. Is that you? Do you know how wealthy you are if you were in Christ? You have the greatest treasure. Ephesians 2.7 calls it the immeasurable riches of God's grace. We've got to learn to treasure what is truly worth treasuring. We're too busy pursuing the things that moth and rust consume. We have the immeasurable riches of God's grace, which are in Christ Jesus, is what that text says. Shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that transform and change the way we think, the way we act, the way we live, the way we give. It should. 